Triple R. This is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. In the studio with me today is Dr. Ewan. Hey, buddy. How are you? Is this the first time this year? Uh, I think it might be. Yeah. yeah. I, I usually say that around this time and everyone looks at yeah, me like... Yeah, I took all no, of January sorry. off, so I think it must be. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's the yeah. first time. Yeah. Mm. Oh, good to see you. Dr. Jen? Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm think- so happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> You seem, very, you seem very happy to be here. Well, I've just had a long holiday. You've been at the farmer's market this morning. It's Melbourne's a glorious place to be. We've got amazing guests. What's not to be happy about? Yeah. Well, that's, that's all good. <laughs> he looks uh, shocked. He looks deeply well, you know, shocked. Just, you know, I'm just trying to absorb some of it, you know, get it in, <laughs> get it in, take as much as I can. Uh, folks, we have uh, a very big show for you today. Uh, later on, we're going to be talking about forests with one of our guests. We're also going to be talking with the... The people who put out the pollen count. How mm. much we love the people who oh. put out the pollen count. All those people count. that suffer hay fever will be yeah. tuning in. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. and We're, we're going to talk a lot about that. But first up, we have Dr. Scarlett Howard from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Scarlett, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you in there. You're one of Jen's old students. I am one of Jen's old students <laughs> and also a previous colleague of Yun. Oh, my God. Yeah, she's <laughs> we, well networked. We got pretty excited when you said that Scarlett was coming in today. We're like, yay, we love Scarlett. It's going to be so good to see her. Yeah, you didn't see the email she sent me when I told her <laughs> you guys were coming on. We don't need to bring that <laughs> up. Let's, let's, talk about that off, let's talk about that off air. We don't oh, need to no, do that It's now. all good stuff. Now, um, Scarlett, we got you in, of course, because I got a, um, a press release come in from Monash University because, now, I like to say it's still International Day of Women and Girls in Science somewhere in the world, I think it was yesterday Absolutely, yeah. but still somewhere in the world. And so, you know, I think um, Monash rightfully were highlighting some of the great researchers that they have, women researchers, and your name came up. And so what, I mean, what does this mean for you this day? Is it, is it something where you go and do something? Did you reflect in some way yesterday, like... What are your thoughts? That's a great question. Um, I suppose I do reflect a bit on the actual day, which was, yeah, yesterday. And for me, it was actually reflecting, Jen, this might include you a bit, um, reflecting on all my mentors um, that have helped me get here. Like, that's, um, you know, men and women as well. Um, But particularly people like Jen, who really inspired me when I was studying and when I was early on in my career to keep going. And I think that's really important, that representation. So that's really what I was mainly thinking about yesterday is all those great people in my life who inspired me to reach the level I'm at now. Yeah, fantastic. And, and, I mean, in terms of the the hiccups and so forth along the way, was there a lot? Like, I mean, a lot of the women I talk to really have... Not exactly horror stories, but certainly stuff that myself and probably you and as guys haven't encountered. Was there some things that sort of really tripped you up along the way? Yeah, there, there definitely were some things. I think I've been pretty lucky, though, in my career to have been surrounded by really supportive teams of people, mm. bosses, supervisors, friends and colleagues, um, family as well outside of science to get me through those challenges. And mm. so I feel like... Yeah, I feel like I'm a pretty lucky woman in science to have gone through relatively unscathed, but that's not always the case. Mm. And sure, there's some hiccups. That always happens in any career, um, being a woman in, you know, sometimes a male-dominated industry. But yeah, overall, I, it's been a great journey. 
Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, I think having people like Jen to, you know, guide you along would have helped. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I just think I feel so fortunate over the last, um, what, 15, 18, I haven't counted how many years I've been lecturing for those years, to have seen people like Scarlett, who, you know, you get to know when they're relatively young in their career. And Scarlett has gone on to such great heights and achieved so many wonderful things as a researcher, but given also my interest, you know, Scarlett's had a lot of media interest in mm. the fascinating bee work that she's done. And seeing someone like Scarlett just absolutely thrive and put herself out there and be visible and become a role model for younger women in science, like that's what makes my job exciting, right? Because we always say you can't be what you can't see. And, you know, for someone like Scarlett to be out, and I know talking to school kids and things like that's that's the power of women mm. in science. So yeah. that all those little kids out there now who might think, oh, you know, I don't know anything about science. Or I remember I had a, a girl say to me once after a school talk that I did, oh, I didn't know that girls could be scientists. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I just thought, God, my heart just yeah. breaks mm. or something was like, like that. 2019 or something like yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it was, think, it was, it was the last yeah. two or three years you know yeah. this little prep girl saying oh i didn't know girls could become scientists no. so i just love seeing someone like scarlett and so many students just go out there and become these incredibly skilled successful yeah. visible women in science it's just the best yeah fantastic stuff now um scarlett of course you you work in bees i, I was it was, it was interesting i was at um one of the beautiful kept gardens up in mount Macedon yesterday walking around you know with my wife and and we came across this one one, you know, I'm taking photos of flowers, and of course, my my wife said, "Take a photo of that one with the bees on it." You know, like as <laughs> yeah. in, you know, you're, you're a science guy. I'm like, you know, the bees are in the way. No, but it was I was sending a photo to a friend. But anyway, but it was interesting, you know, just watching them, and 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 we both sort of reflected for a moment on the fact that we we feel good these days when we see them. And I think I sort of compare that to when I was sort of growing up and it was sort of like you kind of ran because you might get stung. You know, whereas now when, you know, maybe this is an adult thing, but, you know, maybe it's also the fact that they're under such threat. You know, when we see these bees just out and about, it's like, that's great. You know? Yeah, um, you're definitely right. This is a conversation I've had with a lot of bee researchers is a change in bees' publicity and the, yep. <laughs> how how popular they've become and sort of changing what they are to people from being like really scary, these things that might sting you mm. to, oh, they're under threat, but they're really necessary in our society and also our ecosystems. Um, and particularly native bees in Australia, mm. super important. We've got 2000 species, but often we really just hear about the honeybee, yep. which yep. again, I work on both. I work on the honeybee and native bees. So I'm a little bit on the fence with both of them, but yeah, I, I think they don't get enough attention yeah. Um, those native species. Yeah, it's interesting. We we have um, a number of threats, obviously, to our, our bee colonies and communities. I mean, just run us through some of the big ones. I mean, I, I understand there's certain mites and things that we don't yet have in mm -hmm. Australia. Is that is that still the case? Are we still okay? Yeah, um, that's the varroa mite. Uh, yep. So that's mainly going to be affecting honeybees, which yep. are not native to Australia. And they're sort of doing pretty well in Australia anyway. Yep. Um, but it's kind of, yeah, it's an ongoing discussion as what's going on with the varroa right. mite right now. Yeah. And and what other threats do, do bees in Australia have, for example? Lots of threats um, that we see in other countries, but really there's quite little research on what's going on in Australia just because there's, uh, you know, often a lack of funding or lack of expertise or, yeah. yeah, that sort of thing. So we know major threats are things like um, pesticides, intensifying agriculture, climate change, of course, um, and also habitat um, 
disturbances and landscape change in landscape use, all those sorts of things yeah. that you think of when you think of environmental change. That's all of those things are going to be impacting. So the, the standard, bees. the standard stuff hits our bees as the well. Standard yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. Now your work is like the part that's really fascinating is that you look at cognition. Like, and how do you, I mean, how do you determine aspects of cognition with bees? Like, what, what sort of things do you look for? Uh, that is a great question. Um, I mean, cognition really is the ability for bees or any anyone <laughs> to sort of learn and acquire information and then apply it to situations. Yep. So for bees, we are training them to do different, different things. With honeybees, we're at quite a far stage with their cognition that we can look at some really interesting things like we can get them to do addition and subtraction we can get them to recognize human faces and all sorts of things like that um so we, can we just pause it yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry <laughs> addition and subtraction so yes. like you know i'm just thinking there's some school kids out there who are going to try and take some bees to school for exam day <laughs> you know just to help them along what how do you determine that bees can do addition and subtraction Again, another good question. Let's see if I can describe <laughs> I it. Um, so what we do is we train them to come and collect sugar water right. from us and we train them to fly into this maze that looks like a Y shape. So they'll fly in and first we'll show them a, a number of shapes on a card and that might be three, let's say. And if they were blue, we want the bee to add one to that. So she'll fly in, she'll see three blue triangles and then she'll fly into a chamber where then she can see other options okay. that are either you know, might be plus one, which is the correct answer, or a number of other things. And um, what we wanted to do is go to that number four, which is plus one, and um, then she'll get a reward of sucrose. But if she chooses incorrectly, she tastes something bitter. And we'll do that for we, – we just need to train them for probably about five hours or so, and um, they kind of acquire that. And then on the opposite side, if those shapes had been yellow, we need them to subtract one from that number. And so we train them over a – sort of longish period and then they're able to do addition and subtraction <laughs> so mind cool. blown <laughs> so how much of our understanding of i guess bees cognitive abilities is through the european honeybee versus all these other bees that you mentioned that we have and including of course some which is solitary so yeah what what can we say about bees in general because i imagine a huge amount is from european honeybees and then there's all these other native bees that we have in australia including some that are solitary so what can you, what can, what can we learn and, and what do we know about that that variation that's a great point um the eusocial bees so the very highly social bees like yeah. honeybees and bumblebees those yeah. are the ones that we've studied the most for cognition yeah and then we sort of haven't studied much about solitary bees or semi-social bees or those other ones. Yeah. And that's where some of my research is heading now is to look at what's the cognition in these other species yeah. because it is really understudied and making comparisons between them, it's almost impossible yeah. at the moment with the data we've got. So it's important and it's also important to know how those things change with things like environmental change. Is their learning being impacted by those things because they need that to forage and yeah. pollinate our plants? Yeah. So mm. uh, I guess the answer is very, very low information, yeah. right? now yeah yeah it's interesting so in in many fields where you know we we look at animal models of whatever type like if it's zebrafish or it's mice or whatever you know we breed those essentially in captivity as, as it were you know we, we breed them up the zebrafish are bred up what's the situation with bees do you just sort of um you know open up a nice sweet environment and hope they fly in or are you breeding them up and, and controlling that like what happens with the bee scenario uh, well, with the honeybees and with the native bees, it's quite different. Honeybees, we will order an, a hive and then right. have a hive that we can work with just from beekeepers. Um, and then with the native bees, we actually go out into the field and collect them. So we collect adults and then we test them and then we release them back. 
And there are efforts to try and start breeding native bees so that then we can have control over sort of how they develop and Mm. see how they might develop and then learn under different temperature conditions or things like that. But it's really difficult because not a lot's known about them, as I sort of keep saying, I suppose. Um, But, yeah, definitely it's sort of it's they're wild bees that we don't have to maintain or anything we just go out we ask them to do some things if they want to participate they do if they don't want to participate they don't and then we get our answers i love that what's what's the equivalent of sort of participation (laughs) you know acceptance form for a bee like is it just you flew into this thing and that's that's all we need for ethics that's basically it well firstly bees don't have ethics um at the moment which is quite an interesting debate which i don't know if we want to go into that right now we've got a couple of minutes yes um but (laughs) how do you know that Oh well, a lot of invertebrates don't have ethics for them. There's a, there are some that do, but um, insects they mm. don't have any. So, so you're not saying they don't have an ethical yeah, cultural system. Yeah, you're yeah. saying that humans Sorry. are not required to have ethical <laughs> paperwork. Jen, Jen has identified <laughs> Dr. Shane's stupidity there because um, for a moment I thought, as colonies, they they don't act in oh. an ethical way versus you know some other insects or animals do. Um, you know, I mean, some, some animals have funeral sort of processes mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. So there's all sorts of weird stuff going on. But so we don't have ethics around the use of bees. <laughs> Sorry, we don't have ethics around the, the bees use of bees. bees are very ethical creatures. You know what? It can be brutal in the hive. Um, <laughs> sometimes yes, other times no, they will drag out their sick and dying and uh, leave them, them outside because they don't want the disease in the hive. And- <laughs> Yeah. You know, it can be brutal in the hive. Yeah, <laughs> Shane's mind, I can just see Shane's mind kind of, st- you know, there's some smoke coming out of his ears as he's learning all of these things yeah. he's never heard well, of before yeah. about bees. Well, you, you know that most of my bee knowledge comes from the bee movie, which I've said on, on air before, <laughs> but, you know, I'm learning. I'm learning as we go along. So, I mean, just before we go, um, what, what other sort of unusual cognitive elements do you find in bees other than the adding and subtracting? Is there anything else that sort of surprised us? Uh, yeah, I suppose with my work, I've done a lot of work with um, numerical cognition. So right. we know they can order numbers, they can do quantity discrimination, they can match symbols and numbers, sort of like a basic um, number language, like how we use Arabic numerals or Roman wow. numerals. Um, and then if we're looking out to bumblebees and other labs who've done some really cool things, um, observing them, they can learn to use tools. Um, they can learn, like, or not even learn, but they exhibit play behaviour as well, which is just a recent study that came out of um, yeah. Lars Schicker's lab, and that was pretty cool. Mm. Um, wow. So lots of things that happen in vertebrates. We're now starting to realise that it's not just confined to vertebrates and bees and other insects, other invertebrates are maybe just as complex as yeah. vertebrates are. I, I find it fascinating because of just I always think of just how many neurons of these things got, right? I mean, and how much can that do mm. as a just a processor? You know, like it's and it's obviously doing a lot more than we thought, even though they've got relatively tiny brains, right? Yes. Um, actually, you might be interested to know that it's, they've already been used as models for bio-inspired technologies because they have this very tiny brain doing right. a lot of really complex things. So things like flight strategies, um, collision avoidance, uh, regulation of flying height, all those sorts of things have been incorporated into um, technologies already. Yeah. Wow. Well, it forever stuff. makes us embarrassed, I think, with well, how got- big our brains are and how we choose to use them. <laughs> <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> it sounds like uh, yeah, the counting thing. I, 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 there's a lot of people I know who just, yeah, they need some bee help. <laughs> bee help. Scarlett, thanks so much for coming in today and chatting to us. It's, um, it's a fascinating topic, and I think especially with these two in the studio, we could just talk about it for an hour, but um, we'll have to get you back at some stage and talk more about, about bees because I think it's, it's one of those things that environmentally obviously is a huge issue. And if we don't get on top of it, we're going to be in real trouble. And, and 
We hear a lot about frogs, but, you know, we don't, you know, there's more PR these days around bees, but probably not as much as there should be. So Mm. anyway, it sounds like some great work that you're doing there. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you for having me. Folks, that was Dr. Scarlett Howard from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. We're going to take a break for some station announcements. And when we come back, we'll be talking about uh, forests, I believe, and fires and all all the things that destroy the bees. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Not good. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago in the studio with us. Now we have Dr. Hamish Clark. He's from Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Hamish, welcome to Triple R. Hi, Shane. Great to be here. It's good to have you in. This is a topic I've wanted to cover for a long time, and I know you and Jen are very excited about this as well. You look at forest fires and all the mm-hmm. all the you know the stuff that goes into those. I mean, this is such a huge issue in Australia, especially over the last few mm. years. I mean, where do you start? When you're yeah, studying forest a, fires, I mean, I, it's a good you question. Tell me, yeah, yeah. Where yeah. do you start? Like, pick, pick a point and start. Um, so I came into the field from kind of climate change impacts. Yep. Um, so that's where I did my PhD at UNSW. Uh, my background before that wasn't in ecology or climate science, though. So a lot of people interested in fires have that ecological background, mm, or mm. maybe they're interested in fire management. Um, so many angles. So I kind of came into it from the weather and climate side. You know. What are these dangerous conditions, hot, dry, windy? What are kind of long-term trends we've seen in Australia? What yep. might happen with climate change? But then I quick, quickly moved into a group at, at Wollongong and now at Melbourne that's really interested in the full spectrum of, of risk, if you like. So right. what drives fire? How does it behave? Um, what are the impacts you know, on vegetation, on people, on society? Uh, how does fire management affect those things? And then just, you know, sprinkle a bit of climate change into it. To right. More fun. Yeah, just, just, <laughs> just in case you haven't got enough already. Yeah. yeah. Now, tell me, is there is there a scenario where you've sort of got thresholds of fires? Because sometimes what we hear is that, you know, these fires are creating their own weather conditions. Mm, is there a point at which that happens and sort of below that it's maybe a sort of more linear way of, of yeah, managing but- stuff? Whereas above that, like all hell breaks loose, and you've got a completely different problem to solve. Uh, yeah, there are. There's definitely step changes. Um, uh, so they call it um, pyroaccumulate nimbus or firestorms, pyroconvective yep. environments, where they have all this massive extra, you know, weather phenomenon where you you bring in, you know, upper mm. parts of the atmosphere as well as just the surface. That's not my area of expertise, but it's definitely something that managers are really on the lookout. You know, if they think there's a chance. Can, it can radically, you know, worsen the behaviour. Yeah. And then people are looking more and more recently also in terms of, you know, I guess the climate drivers and what climate change might do to them as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, lo- lots of different kinds of, of fire behaviour. Mm. Grass behaves different to forests, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the, obviously the climatic aspects of it, but there's mm. also the, the vegetation itself. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, having sort of, I guess, been involved with some of the work from the 2019-20 fires and, and lots of colleagues who work in fire ecology, I guess one of the concerns was in some parts of Victoria and, in fact, on other parts of Australia is that not only obviously are the, is the weather and the, the climate patterns changing, which are probably going to make fire more likely and potentially more severe when it occurs, but the vegetation itself may change. So you mm-hmm. may lose rainforest communities, as an example, and transition mm-hmm. to, let's say, more open woodland communities, which will carry fire more often. So can you tell yeah. us a bit about that work and, and whether you're sort of looking at that in detail? And- yeah, I've done some and colleagues have done done more, and absolutely it's a huge part of it. So there's a, there's a nice framework I like... Um, which uh, comes from Ross Bradstock, a, a yep. former collaborator, as well as um, Sally Archibald and, and colleagues in South Africa, which kind of splits up the key drivers of fire yeah. and vegetation, absolutely number one. Yeah. Most complicated, yeah. Uh, you know, because, <laughs> you know, you've got 
temperature and rainfall yep. and you've got you know competition and invasive species yep. you've got carbon dioxide fertilization you've got nutrient limitations oh my god yep. there's so much yep. <laughs> um, but yeah some of the work we did identified that potentially actually a change in vegetation type could lead to a bigger change in risk than just a, yeah. a step change in dryness or, yeah. or weather so yeah for sure it's a it's a concern it's a real thing but um the vegetation side's not my mm, area yeah. of expertise <laughs> now yeah. one of the things you sent me which is in your expertise area is this a term that i hadn't heard before atmospheric thirst oh yeah yeah now, i mean this, i read it too and thought oh i want to hear more yeah, this sounds bad <laughs> we, we might have unintentionally coined it um yeah. what so, does that mean yeah, so it's around humidity, basically. Um, vapor pressure deficit is a is a kind of a flavor of the month index that people are really paying a lot more attention to. It describes how much water is in the air compared to how much could be in the air, mm-hmm. and it's got real consequences for fuel moisture and plant, mm. you know, live live plants as right. well as dead, you know, dead plant material which can you know carry and, and start fires. So basically, uh, the difference between how much water is in the air now and how much water could be yeah. is this deficit, this yep. deficit in vapour pressure, you know, the, the amount of water. And um, as temperatures rise, you know, the atmosphere can hold more water, so yep. potentially you can get a greater demand, a, a bigger right. gap, this bigger deficit. Yep. And there's lots of work, you know, in Australia and Mediterranean, US, uh, lots of different po- yep. forest types as well, finding really strong links between this measure of the atmospheric thirst and the condition of fuels and plants and then also the chance of of fire and and that's what our paper kind of Mm. was concentrating on. Presumably with that too that means that if you're on one side of a mountain range versus the other there Mm. is a profound difference in risk profile. Is that, is that right? Because of that, yeah. because I mean, you know, we know that sometimes it rains a lot on one side of the mm. mountain range and very little on the other side. Yeah. But presumably, that affects this sort of this it sort does. of measure as well. Yeah, you can get lots of fascinating um, influences on on risk with with uh, mountains and hills and topography. Um, so another really useful concept in in fires is the fire regime. It's this idea that there's a normal kind of fire wherever mm. you are in the world. You know, so long as there's something to burn. Uh, and so the topography plays into that. Um, you know, the aspect. Um, but also the vegetation type. And, and so you don't just talk about all fires are getting worse, all fires are a certain thing. You're like, okay, what's normal here? Mm. Do we mm. normally have grass fires? Is it a woodland? Is it kind of arid inland areas of Australia where they don't happen very often, but with a double or triple La Nina, you can get the chance of massive ones. Um, so that all that all affects it. Mm. Yeah, and, and how well do we know the sort of models that I guess concerned with rainfall and, and moisture and so forth? Because my rudimentary understanding of, I guess, climate change research is the temperature part of the equation is, you know, it's not easy, but mm-hmm. it's, it's easier potentially than mm-hmm. trying to understand what's going to happen with moisture and rainfall. And, and is that still the case with sort of trying to understand mm-hmm. what's going to happen with fire? And I guess it's timely, right, because there's all this concern that we've just come through this really profound La Nina phase and we think we may actually then flip into a quite extreme El Nino phase which mm. would be disastrous i assume for predictions so how how much of a limitation is our knowledge of sort of rainfall and moisture models uh yeah it's a huge factor absolutely yeah so yeah and that's you're spot on uh, the temperature changes uh, we're much more confident unfortunately it's bad news ever it's yeah. a question of how much hotter it's getting um with rainfall australia is massively variable there's lots of different models there are still some patterns so yeah. drying out of the southwest unfortunately is a bit of a trend in yeah. the southwest wa um, but also a, a decrease in winter rainfall in, yep. in the south so yeah um lots of uncertainty which influences you know obviously in the build-up to a season you know fuel growth but then in the season as well um and yeah, I think we're still waiting to see exactly where the patterns are. But um, yeah, when you pick the starting point too, affects yeah. the trend as well. Yeah. Yeah. So rainfall super super complex. Yeah. So Hamish, listening to you, it occurs to me just how 
um, massively and incredibly our understanding of fire and fire behaviour and fire prediction is growing and changing mm. thanks to people like yourself who are working so hard. But I sort of think, you know, bushfire is part of the Australian psyche, right? People say, oh, you know, we've always had fires, we're mm. always going to have fires. If you could pick, you know, one or two key things that you wish the average person understood about fire based on our advancing scientific knowledge, are there things that you just wish people kind of were more aware of? Yeah, great question. I do, I do think a lot about what are the kind of most important messages. I've tried to, to stick a few in already. So things like <laughs> the drivers of fire, so yep. fuel, fuel moisture, ignitions, uh, and then weather. So they're yeah. four really important things. The concept of a fire regime too. So there's a kind of a normal local fire. Um, fire's complicated. It's a message <laughs> I'd like people to get. Uh, humans are really interlinked with yep. fire. We influence all of those things at different scales. You know, we're changing the weather as we speak. A lot of ignitions are humans. So bringing in humans uh, just com- makes things even more complex. Um, risk is another really important kind of lens, I think. So it lets you potentially compare quite different things. You basically say, okay, what do we care about that's affected by fire and what are the chances it's going to be affected? And so you can kind of try to have a bit of a common currency mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to do everything. So Aboriginal cultural burning, for yeah, example, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not really a risk lens per se um, but certainly for many other things you can think about you know environmental effects as well as human effects you know smoke health impacts mm-hmm. and you can also start putting fire management in the same kind of analysis okay well what are we doing how is that moving the needle are there any risks that we're increasing or modifying based on yeah. how we manage fires as well through prescribed burning for example yeah i mean i think about that and then you know as jen says like all that new information you know we've got drones flying around we've got satellites everywhere we've got mm. so much more information than we once had just before you go though hamish just on the on the firefighting side of things mm. it, i mean it, and correct me if i'm wrong here but it seems like we're doing what we've always done large amounts of water poor guys and women just you know blistering heat in in you know impenetrable environments sometimes mm. you know every now and then we borrow a few aircraft but mm. it, it it just it just seems as though we're, we're coming up against something that in the past those things might have been reasonably effective but more recently mm. we've seen that those strategies uh are not up to what is an enormous challenge now. Is that, it is. I mean, is I mean, that your question? Your, uh, your understanding is actually pretty similar to mine. So the firefighting side of things is not mm. my area of expertise, mm. but you hear a lot of people talking about changes in conditions. I mean, things that they saw even in, in 2003 in Canberra were kind of worse yep. than they'd seen before, and then yeah. Black Summer kind of blew a lot of things out yep. of the water. So I think absolutely it's an issue. A lot of people are saying, you know, there's a major season, a major fire, what can we learn? Mm. You know, we need to do things differently. So I, th- I, think, I think there's a sense that people are wanting to do that. And, and within agencies, I think there's a, a push for that too, but it's a, a super complicated space too. Yeah. yeah. Now, I want to get my fleet of, you know, 25 747s filled up with fuel just ready because <laughs> we know this is coming. Like, that's the thing. We know this is coming, right? And and yeah. what you'll hear is those standard government things, oh, we're going to borrow one from Russia. You know, it's sort of like, well, you know, we know this is coming. We know it's most likely, as you and said, going to be a, a pretty mm. awful the, period the, coming up. The, in the, the borrowing is actually really problematic now because we used to share technology yeah. with California. But now because Overlap. of both in California and Australia, the fire season is being extended so long, yep. that's becoming less of an option. Yeah. So, yep. so I mean, everyone needs it. it. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, I think, uh, you know, sure, Qantas and that have got yeah. them just lying around. People aren't going anywhere. <laughs> Let's just take the seats out, fill them up with water. Maybe some old ANSAT planes, maybe <laughs> lying around in hangars somewhere you think. Up in Sunbury. <laughs> yeah, I'll be. make some inquiries for you. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs>
Look, uh, Amish, thanks so much for coming in today. It's great to talk about this topic, and it's something that um, you know there's there's a lot of interest in. And I think um, the first time I ever talked about fire in the show, I think it was about 25 years ago. Some Syro people were burning an old tram car or something nice. <laughs> <It's> like, <Yeah. laughs> to monitor fire, and I still remember it was so decades ago. But it's such an important topic for Australia. Right, so well, have less than 25 years before your next fire guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriately called out. Uh, yeah. Amish Clark, thanks so much for coming in. Thank Good to you. Chat. No, likewise. Uh, folks, that was Dr. Hamish Clark from Ecosystem and Forestry Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Uh, in a few minutes, uh, after some tunes, we're going to be back talking to the pollen count people. Woohoo! It's pretty low pollen count day, though. So I was going to say, my eyes, neither my eyes nor my nose are streaming, so no. that's a good sign. Well, we'll find out why. Mm. Here we go. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. It's Einstein and Gago. We've got uh, our next few guests in the studio now. We have, boy, we've had a bumper crop so far. I hope you guys can uh, keep up the step. No, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Edwin Lampagnani and Dr. Anders Barlow. Edwin is from the Melbourne Pollen Count. We've been talking about nonstop. And Anders is from the Materials Characterization Fabrication Platform, both at University of Melbourne. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, Ed, let's start with the po- Can I call you Ed? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, just checking. Uh, <laughs> I feel like you know. Sometimes I'm a part of the pollen count. I think I'm one of the few people who retweets your stuff every every day and promotes it because it's so valuable to people. So, give us an idea first. Um, when did the pollen count start? How long have you guys been doing it? Yeah, so the University of Melbourne's been doing the pollen count for about 50 years. Uh, we do currently have records that date back about 30 years until oh. the 1990s. Yep. Uh, and it's been something that's been integrated in the University of Melbourne. Um, it's part of its DNA. Part of its DNA. And I suppose you got a big um, sort of bounce when the thunderstorm asthma event occurred because all of a sudden this became critical health information on a day-to-day basis, right? Absolutely. We grew uh, exponentially, so we changed from being just the Melbourne pollen count to really being a Victorian service, and that involved including more pollen count stations across Victoria. Uh, And it also involved creating a forecast service, so the forecast that we run now. But we couldn't have done that without the research that happened in the preceding 20 to 30 years. Yeah. And why do we care about pollen? Why are we counting pollen? About one in five Australians have allergies, uh, in particular hay fever. Uh, And for those that have allergies, it can really affect their quality of life. Mm. So it can really make a bad day quite miserable. Yeah. And is that because... Is that the pollen itself? Is it something on the pollen? Do we know what is causing these allergies at this point? So it's not the pollen itself, but the pollen inside the pollen are molecules called allergens, and those uh, can trigger an immune response in the body, and that's what affects people. Yeah, interesting. Now, the pollen count, is there, are you there every morning? <laughs> One, two, three. Like, like what, is, is it automated? Like what's happening these days? How do we? How we, do we do. We have uh, so the pollen count traditionally has been done manually, and that's exactly how it happens. It, right. The machine uses a clockwork motor, um, something from the seventies. Um, but we're now transitioning towards automated machines, and that's mm. really what we need. So we're trying to sort out some funding so that we can buy more of these devices. And the big advantage with these is that they generate near real time data. So right. the pollen count is always what's happened in the past. Yep. So in the last twenty four-hour periods. That's why forecasts are so important. Yeah. Um, but these automated machines will really change that, give us up-to-date information. Yeah. Now, there's a, there's a whole app. I, I usually see you guys on Twitter, but there's an app, a pollen counting app. There is. A lot of people. How many people have got that now? Do we have a few? Uh, we have about three or 400,000 people that wow. use the, the app every day. 
Yeah. And does the app give you, like, what sort of risk information does it give you? Does it just give you the pollen levels or does it give you other risk associated with, you know, where it's located? Like, what? how does that work? So we do provide pollen forecasts, particularly for grass, uh, and that's in Melbourne, but also throughout Victoria in different areas. Uh, we also, during the season, October through to December, provide information from the state government about uh, thunderstorm asthma. Mm, right, yeah. yeah. So in terms of the health impacts, obviously there's a huge variety of plants that are going to be, you know, um, producing pollen and, you know, moving up into the atmosphere. So what do you know over that time period in terms of not just the amounts of pollen that you're sort of, um, I guess, recording, uh, but also ha- has the composition of that pollen changed through time in terms of what, what types of pollen you're seeing in terms of what species? And does that matter for people's health? So we don't have records of different pollen types uh, from different trees over yeah. that 50-year period. Um, we've had limited funding, yeah. so it's been mm-hmm. a challenge. But for the last several years, we've been monitoring tree pollens in particular. Yeah. Uh, and also other things like fungal allergens, yeah. for instance. So we're learning more and more about it. Uh, And last year we released our first forecasts for tree pollens, which are really important because it isn't just grass pollen. Other types of pollen can affect people as well. It's fascinating. And and with the forecast, so you've got, you know, you've got all the pollen counts from the last, you know, however many days. Um, How do you forecast what the pollen will be tomorrow? That must be a close association with the Bureau of Meteorology and what's coming yeah, we have a strong partnership with the Bureau of Meteorology uh, and we use machine learning approaches to do that. So we take satellite data, weather data, our pollen count information to generate an ensemble of machine learning forecasts yeah. and um, that's gridded out across Victoria. Yeah, cool stuff. Now, Anders, uh, when it comes to this stuff, it's small, right? You've got to have a microscopist <laughs> in the room at some point. Um, what, what are you using to look at some of these samples? Because as, as Ewan was saying, it's not just one type of grass pollen. There's, there's all sorts of stuff. And presumably you guys are also collecting other contaminants that are not biological of origin. Absolutely. I mean, it's not just the, the, the pollen that we're capturing. Anything in the air mm. that is being mm. filtered out as well. Um, and the pollen is, is quite large in a way. I mean, these are yep. sort of tens of microns in size. Huge. Um, huge from a microscopist's <laughs> point. Um, So you can see these with an optical microscope, but if you're looking for the smaller things, you need to move away from visible light. And so, yeah, we're using the the helium ion microscope at the University of Melbourne, which is one of four in Australia. Um, This is part of the Australian National Fabrication Facility, or ANFF. Uh, and this allows us to see things far smaller than the pollen as well. So mm. it allows us to discover the other things that are being filtered out by these filters. What else is in the air as well that we're seeing? Do we want to know? Well, <laughs> it's the, the world is fascinating at that scale. Yeah. You, know, you start to look down and even just looking at the pollen grains, you, you feel that these are almost a little bit alien in a way. They do mm. look very interesting, the shapes that are on there. Um, but it is important to know what else is there. What else are we actually picking up? Um, in these filters and and how that is impacting the the health of our, our population as well. Yeah, the the pollen is obviously c- cyclical in certain ways. I mean, with the weather, it changes how much we get. Do you find similar things with some of the other contaminants, or are they constants by comparison? Well, this is this is part of the thing that we want to actually discover over the course of a long period of time. Are we seeing variations in these things? Mm. Are we seeing variations between summer and winter based on pollution as a result of, for example, air conditioners? Are yeah, we seeing yep. things as um, we get back into the car and we're heading back into the city? Are there more pollutants that we're actually picking up as the, the, the seasons change? Absolutely. Yeah. I, 
I know on occasion when I've been out in the bay in a boat, and if I look sort of towards the west, so, you know, you're out in the middle of the bay, you look sort of more towards the west, northwest, you know, it looks relatively clean. You look towards the city and to the, to the right, <laughs> to the east, and there's this plaque line in the atmosphere. I mean, can you, can you see that? Like, can, can you, what I'm seeing when I look through it, can you see that under the microscope in terms of what that's made up of, or is that too small? Uh, no, that, that gets down into this sort of scale that we're talking about with these microscopes. So those very, very small particles that are in the air from pollution and smog and smoke, these are what we call nanoparticles. Mm. So these are millions of times smaller than a metre, a thousand times smaller than a human hair. Um, and this is what we can see with these these microscopes in particular. So we can absolutely see those very, very tiny nanoparticles that are being filtered out from yeah. these systems. So. The next thing I'm going to get you to do, Anders, if you don't mind, is because you're in Kemin building there, right? So it's it's about maybe 50 metres to walk over to the biomed sort of precinct. Mm. If you can get some lung tissue <laughs> and just put that and just see if there's any correlation, mm. <laughs> because presumably our bodies are either collecting or filtering mm. this this material. Do, I mean, do you have a feel for? You know, based on the size and, and as you say, the shapes too. You know, some shapes are easier to get out of the body than others. Do you have a feel as to what's going to stick around? Well, that you're absolutely right in that your lungs are a natural air filter. Mm. So they are picking up all of these things that we're breathing in. Um, and pollutants in tissues are a very topical uh, thing right now that people are talking about. Microplastics is a very hot topic mm, right, right now yeah, in yeah. human tissue. So this is part of the discovery phase that, that we're working with Ed and the pollen count to actually get a better understanding of what is being picked up by the human body and where it's going. Yeah, I should also add to that that users can help us understand what's in the air as well. So on the app there's a survey mm. and people can fill it out and tell us how they feel and then we mm. can take that information and correlate it to the observations we're making. Yeah, that's cool stuff. Now, you're not just in Melbourne anymore, are you? No, we're in Canberra, Sydney, Perth, uh, and we're starting to uh, have a collaboration with the Aerator, which operates in Tasmania as well. Yeah, is Adelaide, they're just not interested because there's so much wine, they just sort of flush it out? No, <laughs> Adelaide, uh, we, we're very conscious of people in Adelaide and South Australia, uh, but again, it's uh, it's a funding constraint, so yeah. we're, we're looking for solutions. Yeah, because I, I would have thought Adelaide, the government over there, would be really eager because they get such dry, you know, hot weather with winds from the north and so forth, which can't be pleasant. Um, in terms of, like, when you set up a new city, like, what, what is required? I think you said you had eight um, locations in, in Victoria? where you collect that's correct so so what are they automated the eight or does it all come in and have to be examined we only have one automated counter and that's at melbourne at university of melbourne the other ones are still the manual machines but it's becoming increasingly more difficult to manage those manual devices because we've got limited people that know how to count pollen um and there's constraints with covid um Mm. getting people to be able to access the devices so we're very keen to move that towards automated counters as soon as possible yeah that'd be cool i remember you know the good old days like the community would do all of the um, weather measurements across the land for for the Bureau of Meteorology. I mean, so it, it would be lovely if you could get more of that happening. You know, even if it's organisations, other universities and so forth, saying, "Yeah, we'll put our hand up." I mean, University of Adelaide, surely they can spring for a pollen counting group. <laughs> with the thought, you know, Brisbane, come on, well, reach out. We're very happy to talk. To you. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, look, guys, um, it's, it's fabulous having you in. Keep doing this work because I know um, so many people listening, I'm sure, make use of it every day and, and probably don't even think of where it comes from. And, and they may have this image that there's a mass of people doing this, but it's a relatively small group, isn't it, of you guys doing, doing this It work? is. It is. There's only three core people in the main group. Uh, but during the season, we explode to about 30 people, uh, right. students in particular, that help us do the count across Victoria. Yeah. I love that. I love that discussion with the students. Hey, you could be part of the Melbourne pollen count if you just sit here and count this pollen for a few hours. <laughs> How long does it take to do one pollen count for a day? It's about half an hour to an hour to count one slide. Huh. And how many yeah. slides per day? Or uh, is that the whole day? Yeah, that's a whole day. So there's 92 slides across the season. So wow. quite a bit of work. Yeah, look, it's amazing stuff. And look, the forecasts, are, as I say, they're, they're really gratefully received. And I think especially after the Thunstorm Asthma event where this information is now embedded in the sort of health information we need, just like the information is put out on heavy storms or flooding or anything else, it should, you know, it's core to, to what we do. So... Ed Nendis, thanks so much for coming in today and um, good luck with, I, I hear the desperation for more funding, Ed. I hope it comes through because I think that this is something that should be co- a core service that is funded by government mm. uh, across Australia. So thanks so much for chatting to us. Thank thanks you, for having us. Folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements and when we come back, Dr. Ewan's going to tell us something special. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, folks. We've got about 11 minutes left on Einstein and GoGo. Dr. Ewan has got something for us, I believe, very special. He's been working on all year. Yeah, look, we've been discussing some fairly serious topics, I think it's fair to say, today, and some great, fantastic and really important topics. So I thought I'd end on something a bit more lighthearted and a bit more fun. So... Shane and Jen, in fact, uh, you probably <laughs> got uh, you probably got memories of the Olympics past. Oh yeah. Can you can you name some mascots that you can think of of years years gone by? Ollie. Ollie. Yep, that's one. Well I done. Got, I got From the Sydney just, Olympics. I just always yeah. think boxing kangaroo whenever I think <laughs> sporting events. Well. Know? There's, there's been a whole range of mascots, right right back from 1972. Jen, you would like this one. Uh, Waldy the Dashwund oh, from Munich, cute. 1972. Except We've it would be Valdi. Amic, yeah, Valdi. <laughs> Amic the Beaver, Montreal. Misha the Bear. How could you forget Misha the Bear Misha from bear. Moscow in, in 1980? Sam Eagle, Los I, Angeles. I thought, I thought Moscow was 84. No, not according to my research, Shane. So I'm um, feel free to review. Oh, maybe Winter Olympics. Sorry, Winter, Winter Olympics were 88 in Moscow, I think. And okay. Hidori the Tiger from Seoul in uh, 1988. And then, as you say, we had uh, Ollie the Kookaburra, Sid the Platypus, and Millie the Echidna in 2000 oh, games. I've forgotten about the Echidna. Yeah. yeah. So good. But my point is, these are all wonderful animals, mostly mammals and birds. Uh, but what about some different animals? What about things that your average Australian has never heard of, right? So we have, as we know, extraordinary biodiversity in this country, Mm. the vast majority of which is found nowhere else on Earth. So, you know, depending on which group you're looking at, you're talking 80, 90% plus are found nowhere else on Earth. And you've also heard me rant regularly on this show about how badly we're doing conservation-wise for many of these species, unfortunately. So we have the Olympics coming up in 2032 in Brisbane. Now, I know that might seem a long way off, but I reckon what a brilliant opportunity to think about species that you're probably not going to be your typical choices. So, Well, surely it's going to be a bee. We just learned that bees can count, right? It's going yeah. to be a native bee. 
I think I think bees are a good possibility. I would love to see an invertebrate as mm. one of the mascots. I think Ooh. that would be wonderful. I think peacock spiders as well should yes. really get a look in. They are the most wonderful tiny little spiders, only a few millimetres in length. And the boys in particular have these incredible rainbow colour patterns. Peacock spiders are only found in Australia. And uh, if you want to spend a good um, you know, hour or so... Uh, of downtime, jump onto YouTube <laughs> and type in peacock spider and YMCA. Oh, and they, they, these, the males dance. They have these really elaborate dances that they perform to impress the ladies. Uh, so I think peacock spiders have got a lot going for them. But no, basically, I've already got that. See, I'm, I'm, I'm planning out the opening ceremony with these giant spiders in it now already. They are It'll a promoter's freak the dream. Other athletes out. You know, they won't be able to handle it. And oh, so it's all about psyching out the other teams. Of course. Why yeah, else would you yeah. not have drop bears involved? Well, but we can lie and say that they're highly, highly venomous, right? I, I will say to apologies to all arachnophobes out there. Um, our, our, our point is not to intimidate you, but I think that would actually be a great gateway for getting people more um, interested in spiders and realising that spiders are mm. not these, these animals that threaten us. But it's interesting that you raise... A threatening animal as something that we might choose um, as a mascot because I think species like the blue ringed octopus, yes. as an example, yes. right? Yeah. Beautiful yeah. looking animal. Again, quite small, fifty cent coin, roughly size. Yep. Um, most of the time, they're quite a drab colour, but when they're annoyed, bright blue, and they're mm. they're basically saying to you, "Don't touch me, or I'll, or I'll kill you." Yeah. And probably with a bit of genetic engineering, we could turn it out so that the so that the blue rings are in the Olympic <laughs> ring shape, right? I'm not sure we want to do that. And another species which I reckon most people have probably not heard of but I think need more uh, attention are the velvet worms. So they are, these are these incredible... They're not just found in Australia, I should say, velvet worms. So they're not maybe as uh, unique in that sense. But they are these amazing animals that look a little bit like a mashup between a caterpillar and a worm except that they're in their own group, so the Onychophorans, um, and they've been around, we think, uh, for roughly 500 million years or more and basically unchanged. And speaking of being intimidating, despite the fact that they're so small and they spend most of their life crawling around under rocks and logs and so forth, largely found in forest, wetter environments, how they capture their prey <laughs> is really impressive, right? So if they get about tigers and, and sharks and crocodiles as being these amazing predators, what these animals do is they fire slime out of their heads, two, two, basically two glands, they fire it out of, their, out of their head, that entangles their invertebrate prey, that slime then hardens, they then creep up to their prey, bite it, inject a digestive saliva which liquefies them, and then they <laughs> slurp it out. Now... That's got mascot potential, oh, surely. And opening ceremony. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how that will look, but I think it will look good. And they, they also come in extraordinary colours. And I think it's great that we've been talking about colour as well because I think, again, there's some really wonderful choices at our disposal, including the giant cuttlefish. Mm. Yeah. So for those that don't know, this is another amazing invertebrate we have around the sort of um, southern coastline of Australia. They can get up to a metre in length. Wow. But I think what's cool about cuttlefish, along with things like octopus and squid and so forth, is their shape-shifting and colour-changing abilities. So they can go from, you know, one colour to a completely different colour in their split of a split second, but they can also change the texture of their skin to mm. look like seaweed, as an example. Now, I think, without being rude, we're all old enough in this studio to remember hypercolour T-shirts, oh, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. yeah. Get them wet, they change Can colour. you imagine a yep. hypercolour T-shirt that you have, you know, maybe the giant cuttlefish on that changes colour, right? So cool. Uh, 
you can see that you can see the potential here. So I want to hear from both of you. What what would what would your suggestions be? So forget about koalas and kangaroos. They you know they've been done to death, and I, I'm a mammal person, but I think we need something different. Yeah, I think you've got to take. You'd have to take the international. You know people on a journey though you know could so, so the you could start with the koala and that and then just have them fade out you know and just say like boring you know we've done this <laughs> done this you know release a few drop bears into the audience i think that's always good but uh the cuttlefish stuff in there i think this is one of the things that we we forget about is the stuff that's under the sea exactly and you know some of it's amazing and i mean i'm surprised you didn't pull out dingo well, you know, I think that would be fairly uh, predictable for me, but I think the dingo would be wonderful to see because they are such a polarising animal. Like, I was literally talking about this the other day at a conference, and I cannot think of a more controversial species right. in Australia. It's, right. it's it's basically impossible. So, we do have so many wonderful species in Australia. And another one that I want to sort of give a shout-out to is um, Kila, is, is an Indigenous name for this species, the palm cockatoo. Mm. It's... The largest parrot that we have in Australia, it's this ginormous black-looking mm, cockatoo yep, with yep. this incredibly punk-looking crest on it yep. uh, with this big red cheek patch. But even cooler than that, the males play drums. So <laughs> it's one of the only animals that we know of where they actually play music. So the males will actually find a tree, um, shear off a, a small branch with their incredible um, scissor-like beak that they have, which is extraordinary in itself, and then they will drum. They actually yeah. drum to impress the female. So, and then if you want, you know, reptile friends, I think you know a lot of our reptiles again don't get a lot of attention well, as well. That was going to be my vote. Either a really cool, beautiful snake, or I think the thorny devil. Like, how could you go past a mm. thorny devil as a mascot? So, a couple of factoids about the thorny devil, which is found in arid Australia. They have two, I think, very impressive uh, capabilities. One is that it's been estimated that in a single sitting they can eat more than a thousand ants, which I think is pretty impressive for an animal of that size. So you're we'll talking starve about, all the other teams, You're talking right? about sort of 20 centimetres or so, not a big animal. And what's, I think, even more amazing, and I think Shane will like this, is the physics of their skin. So they have these tiny little capillaries essentially along their skin. So they can stand in a puddle. Mm. and they can use capillary action to draw water from their feet in a puddle up along their legs, up to the side of their mouth, and then they drink it. Personalised straw. Personalised straw. Their whole body is literally a straw because of the way their scales are composed. They can literally suck the water up to the side of their mouth. So I think the thorny devil as well has got a lot going for it. Yeah, that's what I'm voting for. That's definitely a good one. I mean, what I would like to see too is if, if we do this, is can we make the mascots at least look vaguely like the actual animals? That would yeah. be nice. Because <laughs> often when you see them walking around, it's like, what is that? Oh, it's supposed to be a koala. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I think we need to, you know, if we're, we're doing this as part of educating the world on some of the amazing stuff that we've got in Australia and Australia too. You know, a lot of us don't know what's around. Absolutely. Um, we needed to look vaguely like the actual animals. Yeah. I, I remember going to one of the little theaterettes at Hammer Hall and seeing a dinosaur thing one day. Mm. And it was pup. It was puppets and stuff you know there were people in dinosaur outfits but with the right sound and movement and them looking really good these things even though we knew there were people in them they were scary they looked real it was wild yeah and i think we did that well you know you could really bring these things to life in a way that isn't you know just into sort of this hyperbolic imagery of Oh, a koala must have big ears. Yeah, mm. those, so the, yeah, that doesn't really work. So, yeah. Yeah. so uh, my plea is whoever's choosing the mascots, I don't know who's choosing them, but please, let's uh, let's think outside the box. Yeah. 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 And that'll probably be sorted out in the next 12 months, even though it's a few years away. <laughs> exactly. They do this stuff early, <laughs> A long so. time in advance. Well, folks, uh, you've been listening to Einstein the Go-Go. Thank you, Dr. Yuan. Thank, Thank you. For that.
very good stuff. And Dr. Jane, great to see you again. You too, Dr. Shane. Huge thank you to our guest today. I think we had a fabulous crop today. I, I know I say that most weeks, but great know, it's a really good group of people, which is fantastic. Great communicators. Fantastic to learn more about these um, various topics that they discussed. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We'll see you again next week. And in a moment, I'm going to hand over this studio literally to the great team from Edith. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.